This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. It has been one year since the killing of George Floyd. We have a police officer who has been convicted of murder in that incident. And today the White House is meeting Joe Biden, the president of the United States, is meeting with the Floyd family. And we are told, and there are countless editorials, articles, commentaries, we're told that this is a moment that we're supposed to take a step back and think about how we could reform policing and the defund the police movement. We should consider that. That's where we are, right? We're one year into this. And the narrative that the left, the Democrats want you to believe, is that George Floyd's uh, George Floyd's memory led to the BLM movement, which brought about greater justice. That's what they want you to think. That's the story. That's the dominant narrative that there's racist policing in America. We're in a systemically racist society. And the BLM movement is addressing that and has for the last year. And there are things to point to 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 say we're successful in that regard. Unfortunately, the reality of the BLM movement and its usage of the George Floyd incident as an as an inciting moment to go for BLM 2.0 is that Black Lives Matter has made everything worse for everyone. Which I was saying almost exactly a year ago, just a few weeks from now, if you were to go back and listen to this show, that was my assessment then as the riots tore through cities, as police were being assaulted and mobbed and pelted and ridiculed, spat on. This was going to be bad for America and it would be bad for the black and black uh, black and brown communities. That we are told are the whole reason for the defund the police movement, right? That it would actually make things worse for everyone, including in, in predominantly minority areas of the country where there is a, uh, a high crime, where there is, is sometimes a high crime rate, right? That's what we are looking at right now. What has been the reality of the last year? And I have to point now, as, as we are in this martyrdom worship of of the Floyd memory, which is really what's going on here. They have elevated George Floyd as a symbol, a global symbol. In fact, this was a man who, uh, yes, our, our courts found was the victim of police, uh, police excessive force and murder. That is where the process stands right now. There was a murder conviction, as we know, there may be an appeal. We shall see. Uh, but that individual, George Floyd, was also somebody who pointed a loaded gun at the belly of a pregnant woman during a home invasion, had a long criminal history and was someone used to resisting arrest. So that's not to say that what happened to him is in any way justified in that incident. But it is to say that picking this individual as a martyr for a movement is worthy of scrutiny. And I would say criticism. I would say, why is it that it is in these instances, these cases that we see, whether it's Mike Brown or George Floyd, uh, where law enforcement interaction with somebody who was engaged in criminal activity 
and then there is a dispute over the level of force used, that's always the choice. It's not incidents where there actually is what seems to be a, a, a clear. Uh, it's not always, at least, focused on incidents where there's a clear uh, murder by police, which does happen, although very, very rarely. Which, if we're going to have a serious and honest conversation about this, you have to look at the numbers, the facts, the figures. It is incredibly rare for anyone to be murdered by a police officer in this country. There are, and I'm, I'm telling you the truth, this is serious, there are more people killed every year by uh, bee stings than there are people who are unarmed and murdered by police in an incident where the police officer is not using using force appropriately. I think there were unarmed black men in the last year for which we have statistics, which would be 2019 at this point. There were about nine or was it 14 that were killed that entire year by police in an incident that may still have been lawful. But you can't look at the numbers and come away from the saying anything other than why so much exaggeration of this as a concern in society? Why is it that we can't just treat each of those individual cases as worthy of due process and the legal system and let the facts bear out? And any officer who exceeds uh, exceeds the lawful use of force should be held to full account. No, it's a narrative. You see, the narrative is that cops are racist. Cops are bad. And if only we would defund police, we would have a better society, a better country. That's madness. And we now see what's going on as a result of it all across the country. A, a really powerful editorial in the Wall Street Journal today from Heather McDonald, author of The War on Cops. And she writes that 19 children in Minneapolis have been shot this year. Remember, Minneapolis is where the George Floyd incident happened. An increase of 171% over the same period in 2020. Their relatives wonder where the protesters are. Quote, why ain't nobody mad about a 10-year-old, my grandson, fighting for his life, asked Sherry Jennings, Ladavian's grandmother, at a May 17th mayoral event. Because a cop didn't shoot him, is that why? Ms. Jennings warned of a deadly summer for kids if the mayor and the police chief don't step up. Later that day, Ania Allen, six, was caught in a shootout between rival gangs while in her mother's car. Ania died on May 19th. Minneapolis homicides, Heather McDonald writes, between January 1st and last week were up 108% with the same period in 2020. Shootings were up 153% and carjackings 222%. The crime increase began after Floyd's death and has never let up. Nor has the assault on law enforcement that began with the arson destruction of the third precinct building on May 28, 2020. Officers are routinely punched, kicked, and hit with projectiles. There was a near riot in downtown Minneapolis in the early hours of May 22nd following a shootout among club patrons. Two people were killed in that shootout and eight wounded. Responding officers called for backup across the Twin Cities at what the department called an exceptionally chaotic scene. The previous weekend, officers were maced and pelted with rocks and debris while trying to disperse orderly crowds. So there was a movement for justice that started in Minneapolis a year ago today. 
Has it achieved any justice? Has it done anything to the system? George Floyd had a trial or there was a trial because of the killing of George Floyd. The officer was found guilty of his murder on all counts. That was what happened. Why did we need riots? Why did we need mass destruction of property, arson and violence across the country as part of a movement? What did the movement achieve? Well, we're seeing what the movement achieved is more dead people, uh, more people raped, more people assaulted. This is just based on the data and numbers all across the country. And the Democrats use this for mobilization in an election year. The Democrats use this entire incident for the purposes of trying to win power. And it worked. All the pandering. Although all the nonsense from people like Pelosi. Oh, yeah, sure. She's really all about the struggle. She really cares a lot about what's going on in minority communities. No one believes that. All the pandering about how cops are bad, cops are evil. Senior Democrats all across their apparatus. They don't actually think that stuff is true, but they say it. Why? Because it helps mobilize the Democrat base, activists and left wing voters. That there were people who suffered as a result, innocent people all across the country, doesn't matter. That good cops, which people like Joe Biden will say in passing, you know, most of our cops are good. That good cops were defamed with all of this and assaulted and attacked and undermined in their jobs never enters into the calculations of the left. They don't care. They simply don't care. What you see all across the country is... What exact what happened the last time after the Ferguson effect, which was coined by Heather McDonald as a phrase and who wrote this excellent piece in The Wall Street Journal. There's more violence, more death, more despair, and it is disproportionately in minority communities. And that is what has happened as a result of this movement. So as we sit here on the one year anniversary of George Floyd and you have a bunch of frauds and liars, the activists claiming that this led to a movement that did anything other than make things worse. I just want you to know right away, they're lying to you. They are lying. Here's what Heather writes. As lawless as Minneapolis has become, it is hardly atypical. A drive-by shooting or drive-by shootings and homicides jumped nationwide during and after the Floyd riots. Homicides rose 50% in Chicago in 2020, 46% in New York City and 38% in Los Angeles. The U.S. Saw the, saw the largest annual percentage increase in homicides in recorded history in 2020. That increase has continued in 2021. The number of shooting victims in Chicago is up 43% in the first three months of 2021 compared with the same period in 2020. Through May 16th, the number of shooting victims in New York City is up 78.6% over a year ago. In the Bronx, the number is up 107, 165.7%. We are at the one-year mark of George Floyd's killing and the movement that it spawned. And we look at that movement, and the data is clear. It is a disaster built on misrepresentations and lies. What does the White House, what do the Democrats offer as the reason behind the huge spike. I mean, no one can hide this data anymore. They can't argue about it nationwide. What caused a nationwide increase in violence, in homicides 
home invasions, armed robberies, rapes. Well, what caused all of that? Oh, they'll 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 come up with something, I'm sure. And Jen Psaki, among the most obviously inept members of this Biden White House, uh, this is her explanation, the White House press secretary for what caused the rise in crime. Play two. Is there a crime problem in this country? Well, I would say certainly there is a guns problem, uh, and that's something the president would say. And there are communities where uh, local violence and community violence is an issue. And that's one of the reasons that we have proposed and have now are implementing funding for community violence prevention programs across the country. I will say um, that we don't often highlight, and you just gave me the opportunity to, the fact that between mass shootings, mass shootings that get a lot of attention, that we lower the flags, there are hundreds, thousands of people who lose their lives. And that's one of the reasons the president will continue to advocate for the Senate passing uh, back universal background checks, but also advocate for actions in states where we have seen uh, the greatest level of activism over the past several years. Community violence prevention. She sounds like a moron. Well, there's a reason for that. This is blather. This is the White House press secretary saying that there's not a there's not a crime problem. There's a gun problem. No, there's a crime problem. A lot of the crimes, Saki, don't even involve guns. There is a crime problem in this country right now. It is all heading in the wrong direction. And the reason for that is Democrat pandering. It's Democrat pandering to victimology, identity politics, anti-cop animus. That's why this is happening. We know why it's happening, but they won't say it. No, they'd they'd rather live in this fantasy land of if only we had more social workers, if only community violence was addressed differently. I got news for Saki and all the rest of the lunatic libs. Violence that occurs in the context of crimes, it's it's not a problem of the community. It's a problem for the community, as in it is done to people who aren't committing crimes. But there's no no sympathy expressed here. There, there's no desire for immediate change, and that would mean change in policy. To make the over 99% of people who live in even the most high-crime neighborhoods who aren't engaged in violence against the innocent, there's, there's no uh, consideration given for their plight. No, more important to... Let's just paint some George Floyd murals in places, put up some BLM hashtags, put up some BLM black squares on our Instagrams or whatever. Let's do some virtue signaling. Let's put let's put Black Lives Matter flags at U.S. embassies. I saw that report from uh, what was it? Uh, The National Pulse. Right. Let's let's tell the whole world that BLM is a movement that the United States government stands by. It's just propaganda. That's what really is going on with the government. They won't address the real problem here, which is that they're undermining law enforcement because there is a narrative that is very apparent on the left. I mean, you see and hear it all the time that America is a systemically racist country, that our our police are, in fact, just the continuation of slave patrols. This is what is said, that the historical precursor for uh, for police Today, this is written by the New York Times, is is slave patrols from the antebellum era. It's a lie. It's historically ignorant, but 
they still say this, right? What do we want? Dead cops. That was a chant that I heard. Pigs in a blanket. Fry them like uh, bacon. That was a chant that I heard from BLM protesters. And I've seen the posters, the placards that they hold up at these these, uh, protests. And I'm not even talking about the riots. There is no honesty. The lib elites are total frauds on this issue. They know. They know that that making it harder for cops to do their job, making sure that people aren't signing up to be cops, that the Ferguson effect of law enforcement officers unwilling to get involved, to intervene because they don't want to risk their livelihoods and their freedom, perhaps, means that innocent, good people all across the country, black, brown, white, everybody, innocent people all across the country suffer as a result of this lie. We saw this all last year. It's appalling that there was such an unwillingness. People were running scared from the notion that uh, BLM wasn't actually working out well, that defund the police is the dumbest slogan of any political movement in modern American history, okay? I, I, I can't think of anything as stupid in my lifetime as defund the police. But this is said by people who think that they're Astute think that they're wise on this issue? Really? What would happen if we really defunded police? Oh, well, then they get into it. We don't really know what defund means yet. We're still figuring it out. Well, while they're figuring it out, kids are catching stray bullets. While they're figuring it out, places like Chicago and Memphis and New Orleans and New York and Los Angeles are having violence at un- unforeseen levels in decades. and Or uh, rather, unseen in decades and what do we what do they say in response to it let's just make some more george floyd murals that's going to solve the problem let's have some more professional athletes take a knee for george floyd that will solve the problem when running a business hr issues can kill you you got wrongful termination suits minimum wage requirements labor regulations and hr manager salaries are not cheap an average of seventy thousand dollars a year that's why you need bambi Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. It gives you a dedicated HR manager who can craft HR policy, maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. I mean, when you look at some of the customer testimonials for Bambi, uh, it just becomes so clear what an enormous advantage this becomes for you and your business. Here's one, quote, Andrea from Bambi HR has been our guardian angel. She's always there to answer any questions or concerns when it comes to anything HR related. She's helped me navigate how to best handle COVID-19 situations within the company, as well as any new policies, job descriptions or compliance issues we may have. I would recommend Bambi to any small business who is lacking in the HR area. Here's another one. Quote, Patrice has been a great resource for our growing team. She's a source of calm when everything else around us is fast paced and hectic. I'm grateful for her guidance and direction. She helps keep me grounded and gives me great confidence that every HR decision we make is not only compliant, but best practice. End quote. Those are real Bambi customers. All right. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager will be available by phone, email or real time chat. From onboarding determinations, they customize your policies to fit your business. And they do this all for just $99 a month. Think about it, $99 a month. No hidden fees, cancel anytime. 
Go to Bambi.com slash buck right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash buck. Bambi.com slash buck for your free HR audit. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Get Bambi today. We keep getting told by the media when we push back on some of this stuff, it's not about hating cops. We're not saying that the cops are the problem, but that is what they're saying. This is just gaslighting. That's what the BLM movement claims. That is its central premise, that law enforcement is racist. That people have to be scared if they are black or brown because of law enforcement. This is not rooted in fact. It's not rooted in reason. It's an exaggeration of what is what are outlier events with the millions and millions of of police law, uh, police civilian interactions that are happening every year. But get rid of qualified immunity. This is what we're, you know, because because I actually do want to focus on, OK, what does the BLM movement want? A lot of this is just people that are looking for a cause, you know, everything you've got. You know, white liberal 19 year old girls driving around in, you know, daddy's Range Rover who are all BLM and, you know, marching over there. They're a joke. I know people like this. You've got 30 year old trust fund kids living in Connecticut who are putting BLM on their Instagram page or BLM on their Facebook. It's virtue signaling. It's, it's cool. It's a social. We see that. That's obvious, right? This is unfortunately a very effective tactic of the modern left that they just create because they control so many of the institutions of our culture cheap virtue out there for anyone all you have to do is go along all you have to do is be a mouthpiece for whatever the preferred slogan of the moment may be and and you're showing everybody you're one of the good people cost you nothing you do nothing okay so that's obvious right we know that that, you know, college students or people in their 20s and 30s, Gen Z, millennials who risk nothing and do nothing and live in safe neighborhoods and put out on social media how much they care about BLM and George Floyd and in memory of George Floyd. We know they're a joke. They don't care. They don't deal with the reality. This is all about them. This is all self-indulgence under the cover of altruism, but it's self-indulgence. So let's look at what the actual policies are. Let's look at what people who are involved in the movement are are actually saying should happen here. Here's Floyd family attorney Chris Stewart on qualified immunity. Play 23. This is a phenomenal bill. Anybody that knows about policing, about civil rights, about how these actually work in court, they know that qualified immunity uh, getting rid of that is not going to make a bunch of lawyers like myself sue more cops. It's not. It's ridiculous. Um, because what really happens is in these cases in court, cities toss the officers away so they don't have any coverage anyway. So it's not going to make lawyers go out and sue more cops. Um, it's semantics. It's because some people are just saying, I don't want to look like I'm allowing cops to be sued, when in reality, it's not going to affect it at all of getting more officers sued. So getting rid of it will change the mentality of policing. It makes an officer know I can't go out there and do whatever I want, um, which is all the change that needs to happen. So getting rid of it has to happen. It's not going to hurt police officers. That's semantics. 
Oh, sure. Sure, it's semantics. This is not true. What he's saying is, yeah, sure, the law would then make it so that you could sue a cop personally for doing his job at any point in time. But that's not going to result in a whole bunch of lawyers suing cops unnecessarily, unfairly. I mean, this is honestly this this guy is he's this is a joke. This is a joke. Um, Qualify. Why does qualified immunity exist if it does not grant qualified immunity to the officers? The law is the law. But what he's saying is, well, sometimes they'll say that you went outside the scope of your employment and that, you know, you because of your misconduct. Yeah, that's because they've decided that there are limitations to qualified immunity. But the baseline standard is you can't just sue a cop directly for doing his job as a person in the course of his duties. There's a reason this exists. It creates an additional barrier to frivolous BS. But notice he says, yeah, it's just going to create a difference in perception in law enforcement. Oh, sure. This is the Floyd family attorney. So take, you know, you, you know what's going on here. Sure. Now cops will say, I'm not going to use excessive force and murder somebody because I, I don't have qualified immunity anymore. So. Yeah, that's that's really going to change the thought process. This is just stupid. I mean, this is a stupid comment from a lawyer who's not very good at the law, but good at getting people upset, good at the narrative, good at making it seem like there's some intellectual merit to uh, to any any of these um, defund the police storylines or these ideas that we're going to make everything better by getting rid of qualified immunity it's stunning as this continues to play out that there's so little honesty in the press about this but that's where we are as a country as a society and people suffer as a result this is not just something that's uh rhetorical this is not just some intellectual argument there's been a huge surge in crime in america and it started right when the blm movement got going Right when the winds of political change came through police precincts all across the country, as in the Democrats are ascendant, they're calling the shots, and they're going to feed you to the mob the moment that it is inconvenient for them to defend you as a law enforcement officer. That's what happened. They say, oh, it's the pandemic that caused the surge in violence. No, that doesn't stand up to a moment's scrutiny. The numbers all start to change dramatically right around now a year ago it was the ascendancy of the blm movement and the narrative of blm that led to the change in policing that led to the huge increase in murders shootings remember for every person who's shot there's a family that's devastated there's a community that's devastated there's a neighborhood that's terrified every time that happens there's a person who loses his or her life and then there's also all the other victims all the other people that have that loss so when you're talking about thousands of additional homicides compared to what would have been a normal year in America, that's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people directly affected and connected to that, that incident of violence. So the second order effects are much greater and that's or, or much broader. And that's something that you have to remember. So. The other part of this, and Heather McDonald actually points this out in her excellent Wall Street Journal piece, 
is that no other country in the world saw a huge surge in violence. No other industrialized nation saw a huge surge in violence because of the pandemic. In fact, if you just think about this for a second, it should be what you saw in Canada and the UK and relative to their normal crime rates, big drops in crime. Far fewer people interacting with each other, far fewer people on the streets, more people at home. Right. So, yeah, there can be home invasions, but that's a that's a riskier proposition for criminals, especially in countries where anybody may be armed. Right. There's there's a whole you know less less drug dealing disputes going on, all of that, because you have people interacting with each other less people are locked at home. But the numbers, the data, the facts, they don't they don't matter in all this. There's a storyline. The Democrats stick to it. The Democrats are the party of elevating victims. The Democrats are the party of helping the oppressed. The fact that they are creating more victims by adhering to this false narrative doesn't matter. And that's just the cost of Democrats doing business. That's just what we see happening. Um, And pretending that police retraining or federal government oversight of police stations looking for racism in every police department that comes up on their radar, that that's going to make anything better for anybody is a fantasy. We know it is absurd, but people are scared of being called racist. They are scared of falling on the wrong side of BLM. And so, so many out of either just self-advancement or cowardice Bend a knee at the altar of St. George Floyd. Look, George Floyd was somebody who suffered from police excessive force, and an officer is now going to spend decades of his life in prison for that. I also know that there's plenty of plenty of real legal analysis out there that George Floyd, uh, the George Floyd case against Derek Chauvin, the, the incident of George Floyd's killing, his his murder, uh, is going to be appealed. And that we will see what ends up happening. But as of right now, we have a police officer convicted of murder. And that is the the, the system has spoken. Yet look at all the rest of what has happened from BLM. What has the movement actually done? All right, there was a trial. And if you believe that George Floyd was murdered, there was justice. At least as much justice as our system can give anyone. What then for all the rest of it? Heather McDonald, I'll just give you a little more from her Wall Street Journal piece here. Of the 100 homicide victims in Minneapolis since May 25th, 2020, only one was killed by a cop. The victim was a suspected gun runner who had tried to run over officers before shooting at them through his car window, causing them to return fire. There is little evidence that the Minneapolis Police Department systemically violates black civil rights, but Attorney General Merrick Garland has opened a civil rights investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department anyway. If history is any guide, the resulting dissent uh, dissent uh, decree will cause crime to increase in the city as officers back off further proactive policing. The victims of that additional crime increase will, as always, be disproportionately black. At least three quarters of Minneapolis's homicide and shooting victims are black, though the city is less than a fifth black. Sharpton and Crump have no answers to that dilemma, so they ignore it. The reality of BLM policing in America and the epidemic of violence that we are seeing. Governor, 
Hi, uh, I want to ask you about the bill that you're signing here today. Um, uh, you're a loyal supporter of former President Donald Trump. Uh, first, uh, Donald Trump is now a resident in Florida, and he was deplatformed. Is this bill for him? The bill is for everyday Floridians, this is what we said, um, and it would allow any Floridian to be able to um, to provide uh, what, what they're doing. So, um, But I think, I mean, I do think that's another issue that, that has been brought to bear. When you deplatform the President of the United States, but you let Ayatollah Khomeini talk about killing Jews, that is wrong. Ron DeSantis just, just racking up those wins down in Florida. The governor of Florida... He's he's not tired of winning. He's not tired of winning. And I think we all need to understand that this is a guy who's showing us what can be done at the state level. He signed a bill prohibiting tech platforms from suspending or banning political candidates in the state with possible fines of up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per day. If the candidate is seeking statewide office, twenty five thousand dollars per day if the candidate is seeking a non statewide office. This, I mean, this is so important to understand the the implications of this. We already have all kinds of restrictions on the First Amendment that Democrats love. They want restrictions on money in politics. They want restrictions on it was the it was the position of the Obama administration in Citizens United at the Supreme Court. The solicitor general for the Obama administration wanted the right to be able to ban books about political candidates before an election. That was the official position of the Democrat Party under Barack Obama's time in office. Citizens United, all the dark money in politics. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Absurd. I work in radio. There are all kinds of restrictions on radio. You know, the FCC, what I can say, who I can talk to, equal time. There's all kinds of things there that uh, that are already regulated but see the democrats want no regulation no touch allowed on the shoulder of big tech because big tech is almost entirely a left-wing pack that's what we know that's what we see happening all the time and they don't want that to change They don't want that to be any different because it is an enormous advantage for them. Um, And look what they've been able to do. Meanwhile, you've got, you know, Joe Scarborough, whose ratings are down on that show. He's just not a very smart or good or ethical person. That's very apparent from what he says and does on TV all the time. Um, But he, he also doesn't understand the law or the Constitution. But this is the kind of crap you'll hear from leftists or whatever, whatever. Scarborough is a whatever Whatever my paymasters at MSNBC, whatever, whatever coins they throw at me, that's what he'll do. And whatever they tell him to do, that's what he'll say. Play 19. This, that's what's so uh, cute about uh, <laughs> this political stunt, this political gesture. First of all, it's most likely unconstitutional. It violates the, the First Amendment and how a private company chooses to moderate content on their platform. Uh, but, but secondly, the hypocrisy of people like Ron DeSantis and Josh Hawley uh, saying they're small government conservatives who believe in free market and free enterprise and believe in the power of companies to run things the way they want to run, deciding they are going to be uh, use the power of the state to tell Facebook or to tell Twitter 
uh, how to run their First Amendment policies. It's just uh, that's a bizarre thing for a small, uh, an alleged small government Republican to do. You know, yeah, we're just we're all of a sudden he's a market absolutist. You know, yeah, the free market they do whatever they want. First Amendment rights. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Oh, OK. He's on a cable channel. There's all kinds of regulations out there about what you can do in decency. There are all kinds of restrictions on 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 um, transparency and political advertising. I mean, to say just the First Amendment means when, when it comes to Facebook and Twitter, for obvious reasons, the left takes the position they can do whatever they want. They can do anything they want. No regulate. Oh, OK. So these those are the companies that have no regulation all of a sudden, according to the left which Joe Scarborough is a part of. I mean, he's just a paid hack. We'll do whatever they want him to do. And this is so interesting. But it's like I always tell you, it's just about power. There's no principle behind any of this. They'll say whatever they have to say to get what they want. That's the attitude of the left. That's the attitude of social justice warriors. That's the attitude of the commies that are increasingly obviously ascendant in American public and private life. We have people that, want totalitarian left-wing control of the government. They think that would be a better thing. I'm not saying that we're there and that's what the country is in, but that's what they desire. And whatever they have to say to push in that direction, they will say. And people like Joe Scarborough will say it too because, you know, they're paying him. We don't have enough data and information to jump to a conclusion at this point in time. We have repeatedly called for the WHO to to support an expert-driven evaluation of the pandemic's origins that is free from interference or politicization. Uh, and now we're hopeful that uh, WHO can move into a more transparent, independent phase two investigation. I would say uh, in terms of the report, which was specifically about individuals being hospitalized, we have no means of confirming that or denying that. I mean, it's not a report from the United States. I think the journal cited a U.S. intelligence so that would have been a U.S. report. Well, I don't have any I don't have anything more on a U.S. intelligence report. Now, all of a sudden, it's not clear. Now, all of a sudden, it's not obvious that the Wuhan coronavirus came from, oh, you know, a, a cave somewhere. Now, all of a sudden, it may it may, in fact, be the case that those who were saying all along that this could have been the result of an error in a lab that was studying it. That's not crazy. Gosh, I know this is not surprising to you and me, but it is interesting, isn't it? How how much changes and how much they the the consensus Fauci left, how much they've gotten wrong over and over again. Here's the former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, on this play 20. Someone, some somebody will have worked in that laboratory and will decide they can sneak out of China. They'll come tell the truth. I'm convinced. But sadly, I don't think that'll happen in a timely fashion. And so what what can the world do? How can we hold China accountable? There are many fora that we could do this. And one, why on earth would you rejoin the World Health Organization, which rewards the Chinese for the exact partner that they joined in the cover up with? Right. It was Dr. Tedros and Xi Jinping that colluded to keep this information out of the hands of the world. And so there are many things the United States government could do to impose real cost on the Chinese Communist Party until they come clean about what they know and what they did. We know for sure they covered up this virus. 
I am confident that we will find that the evidence that we have seen to date is consistent with a lab leak, and I'm convinced that's what we'll see. If I'm wrong, I hope the Chinese Communist Party will come forward and make a fool of me. They're going to hold back data. They're never going to give us full transparency. We all know that. China won't even allow its own people basic freedoms. You think that they're really going to respond to a good faith uh, a good faith ask for data and information from the World Health Organization or the U.S. for that matter? Now, I think that Mike Pompeo, I will tell you, is overstating the leverage that the U.S. has to get answers here. The reality is that there is nothing that we are going to do. There's nothing we can do to force China to tell us things that would lead us to believe that they were that the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that that the regime uh, was reckless in the uh, in the original or in the outbreak of COVID-19 and covered it up. That effectively their negligence caused a global pandemic that has killed millions of people and cost trillions of dollars. They're, they're never going to admit that. They're never going to give us the data to prove that or see that. They will always, always, always tell us that this was from bats or we don't know or, you know, whatever it was. That's the way this will go. So I think that we need to understand that. Yes, it, it is worth pressuring China on this, but, the, you know, there's only so much you can do for a situation like this where China views this as not existential for its future, but certainly a high enough priority to cover this up that nobody is going to get them to, to, to do anything on this that they don't want to do. That's I, I think that much of it is is obvious at this point. Um, but. I remember when this was for conspiracy theorists and all the different news stories and all the people who were so quick to either fake certainty or to just lie about this. You know who's who's been pretty good on I got to say? Governor Ron DeSantis. Once again, DeSantis, he's not tired of winning. Play 22. Now we have information that this very well may have emanated from the Wuhan lab, that it was a it was a leak from the lab. But you remember when people last year were raising that as something that needed to be investigated, they were deplatformed for talking about uh, the lab leak. They were censored for having said that. And now even Fauci admits that this may be something that very well um, is the case. Are they going to now censor Fauci and pull him down off social media? That's one of the things that I will not forgive or forget. That big tech shut down people for for wrong thing, but they said it was for, you know, factual inaccuracies. They brought these little these little idiot censor stormtroopers oh the fact checkers from places like politifact an embarrassment of an organization and politifact media matters these are places where only the the lamest slimiest human beings would ever want to spend time or draw a paycheck but that's that's what ended up happening they outsourced their censorship to these so-called fact checkers and that was it right if you were on the wrong side of them sorry the fact checkers have spoken. That's the way that went. And now they're wrong. We see they're wrong on a lot of things. They weren't actually facts. They were just opinions with the veneer of scientific consensus. And that was all that was necessary to push the whole thing through. 
and to shut you down, to shut me down. I, I still have it. I still have PolitiFact writing an article. Oh, outdoor. I said outdoor masking is stupid. Yeah, it is stupid. I was right. You know, it looks like the CDC. I saw some uh, rumor reporting that the CDC may change its outdoor mask guidance for kids at summer camps because it is so stupid and so unscientific and so idiotic on every level that the CDC is em- embarrassed enough to reconsider its position on that. But going back to the COVID origins fight, because, as you know, that's getting a lot of attention this week. And we talked about it uh, in detail yesterday on the show. What is the preferred uh, the preferred rationale now for why they all turned on the lab leak theory and believed the came from a cave theory or the wet market, right? Came from the wet market. Uh, If that were the case, why weren't all the cases that they initially established having some connection to that wet market? They, they didn't. Some of them had no connection. That doesn't make sense. Ah, but Maggie Haberman, Democrat at the Democrat New York Times, wants you to know that it's really Trump's fault. Play 11. I do think it's important to remember that part of the issue when this was first being reported on and discussed back a few months after the pandemic had begun was that then President Trump and Mike Pompeo, uh, the uh, secretary of state, both suggested they had seen evidence that this was formed in a lab. And they also suggested it was not released on purpose, but they refused to release the evidence showing what it was. And so because of that, that made this instantly political. I think that it was, you know, example 1000 when the Trump administration learned that when you have burned your own credibility over and over again, people are not immediately going to believe you, especially in an election year. However, that does not mean it's not worth discussing. There has been a sort of persistent, albeit relatively quiet, focus on whether that was the origin of the virus. And it is compounded by the fact that uh, there are, have not been clear answers from Chinese officials about it and that investigators trying to find out the origin have been stymied. So I do think we're in a different period of this, John. But I also think it's important to remember because I think it's getting re- framed in a way that's just not true to what happened. I don't mean here. I mean, in this this broader debate by Trump supporters about what happened when this was originally raised. Okay, let's let's unpack this for a second. Maggie Haberman in in convincing and and pretty, uh, you know, pretty fluid fashion here is really just making the case for, yeah, we got it wrong. The media got this wrong by and large, but We had to get it wrong because Trump's such a liar that the fact that Trump said that it came from a lab justified us going against him. Which was the media's attitude about everything. If Trump said it, it must be wrong. But they believe that that's actually a sound rationale. They believe that's actually a reasonable justification for being wrong. If Trump said it, it has to be incorrect. Doesn't that tell you a lot about where they really were on this. Doesn't that tell you a lot about what the media... Well, you already know this. I mean, the media was psychotically opposed to Donald Trump. But even on something where there were other voices all along, there were experts who were saying, no, this actually looked like it probably came from a lab. Uh, They insisted on opposing that theory and discrediting... not, Not just saying, we don't think this is right. It's a conspiracy theory. You're a kook. You're a nut. Don't believe it. They insisted on that because it was politically expedient. This is just another data point to show you why you cannot trust the corporate media. You cannot trust them. 
They are not about honesty and truth and transparency. They are propagandists. They are pushing a narrative and they are seeking power for their side. The most important thing, this is if you read between the lines, what you are being told here, even by a celebrated New York Times journo, the most important thing here was opposing what Donald Trump said at the time, not getting it right. Because in an election year, having Trump look like one, he's correct, but also pointing to China as the origin of this, a country that Donald Trump was much more willing to confront and deal with in a forceful way than his predecessors of either party. That wasn't a narrative they wanted to tell. It was Trump's a buffoon. He's an idiot. He can't even he's making up things. Oh, he's making up things about the origins of the virus like he makes up the injecting bleach into his veins. You know, these other stupid things you hear from the journos all the time. And so they got this wrong, but they're not remorseful about getting it wrong. They just wish they hadn't gotten so blatantly caught. Because what was important to get this right, to understand the truth of this virus early on? Because you can't stop the next pandemic, really, if you don't know how this one started, right? That didn't matter as much. Bash Trump. That was always on everything. That was mission number one for the journos. Don't ever forget it. I'm surprised he took this long, and, and he shouldn't have. And now he needs to call members of his own party and tell them it's time to stop this rhetoric. I mean, when you say things like calling Benjamin Netanyahu an ethno-nationalist on the floor of the United States Congress, when you call Israel an apartheid state, which mem- Democrat members of Congress have done on the floor of the United States Congress, that's incendiary rhetoric, Brian. And we've had almost 200 incidents of violence reported now against Jewish Americans. Again, that's just reported. We don't know what else is out there. That's too many. That's too much. And this rhetoric is contributing to it. It's got to stop. The left has an anti-Semitism problem. That's apparent to anyone who's paying attention. The left has got problems when it comes to the Jewish state. And I think we all know what that means. Now, not all Democrats, obviously. There are many Democrats who are very ardently pro-Israel and are Jewish themselves or are very pro-Jewish themselves. But if you're looking for the real The real home base of anti-Semitism in America today, it is on the political left. And to give you a sense of this, uh, perhaps in a way that gives you a a vision into what the future of this conversation looks like, Ami Horowitz, who is uh, a friend of mine for for many years, I've known Ami now for almost 10 years, he's a a documentary filmmaker, a a journalist, uh, just a guy who makes content to expose some of the political absurdities out there of the left. He's been doing this for years. He does a lot of man on the street stuff. He has gone from uh, he's gone to a college campus and he's asking people in this in this video, many people on the, on this campus where I'm sure there's a lot of you know, anti-Israel and BDS, um, uh, or I think that's what it's called, right? Uh, what is it? Boycott, divest, sanction. Yeah, BDS. Uh, a lot of that activity on the campus that's on campuses all across the country. Ami goes and asks students if they will support Hamas financially and the destruction of Israel. In I'm sorry, this is actually a, a Portland park. Pardon me. This is in a park in Portland, Oregon, not on a campus. It looked like a campus to me. A park in Portland, Oregon, but it's Portland. So you got a lot of loons walking around. Here he is. Play 
I'm going to put this in two parts. First, Ami posing this to people. So you hear him talking to a lot of different people. And then we'll play the responses from the people he's talking to in the park. Play five. We're raising money for American Friends for Hamas. So I work for American Friends for Hamas. I work for American Friends for Hamas. Okay. We're not your father's terrorist organization. We've kind of evolved beyond that. It's still kind of what we do, but we've kind of rebuilt and rebranded ourselves. And, and uh, you know, you know, Hamas is where it's at. We're raising money to do what, you know, we do as Hamas. We want to fund operations against Israel. And, you know, the type of uh, attacks we're talking about are cafes and schools and, you know, soft targets. Type operations we're talking about against, you know, soft targets, schools and cafes and that kind of thing. Make them feel it. Uh, hospitals and destroy cafes, you know, shopping malls and schools and places of worship. This is the kind of stuff we're talking about. Civilian populations. And uh, this is the only way you can fight back, really. The suicide bomber is all we've got. And that's kind of like, because it's the poor man's F-15. It, it, right, right. Uh, and fun uh, operations against Israel. That's the kind of thing we're doing. Okay. Well, hey, right. thanks for your time, man. Yeah, of course. Appreciate it. Good luck. Thank you. No, we, we're looking to wipe Israel off the map. So he's making it very clear. I mean, I, I, I want to make sure that we understand. Before I play the responses from these various people, now this is man-on-the-street stuff. This is not a scientific study. This is not a scientific poll or anything like that. But it's you know a nice day in Portland in a, in a public park. He's walking around saying, hey, I'm raising money for American friends for Hamas. Now, in reality, I'm sure some of you are thinking if you were raising money for what is a designated terrorist organization, uh, you could get into a whole lot of trouble. So he's he's clearly doing this as an act of of parody and and uh, undercover journalism. Um, but just to give a sense, though, for the people that are now, maybe they don't know this, but it's true. Material support to a terrorist organization is uh, I think you can get 10 years in federal prison for that. And raising money certainly constitutes material support. So so he's he's even going around asking people now they may not know that, but I think they probably should. But he's going around asking people this and he's making it very clear what he's hoping with his fake friend, American Friends of Hamas organization, what he's hoping to accomplish. Here are the responses that my friend Ami Horowitz got in this Portland Park. Play six. Yeah, we want, you know, we, we're looking to destroy Israel. We don't want just Gaza. We want to have all of Israel. No, I, I've actually been learning about last in this last school year about everything that's going on over there. So I, I like the sound of what you're doing. It sounds like a great thing to do. Yeah, totally against the Israeli genocide. Awesome. We just want to get rid of Israel. Stay off drugs. But we would love you to check out our website. That would be wonderful. Good luck. Thank you. Do you feel like donating to help the cause, to fight back, and that'd be great? For sure. Well, definitely. And maybe consider making a donation. Sure. Great. Probably like 15 bucks. 15 bucks? Yeah. No, that'd, that'd be great. Um, maybe like 10, 20 bucks. 15 to 20. 5 or 10 dollars. Uh, maybe like 10 dollars. 5 dollars. 10 bucks? 10 dollars. 5 or 10 bucks? 10 bucks? Let's say 27 dollars since that seems to be my Bernie donation. This is all about peace and love. We got to fight back against the oppressors. I agree. I agree. See you, brother. Yeah, I mean, it's important to kind of fight back and not let not take it lying down, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Hey, sure, peace, peace and love. Yeah, thank oh, yeah. you. Peace and love. Yeah, peace and love. See you, man. Yeah. Thanks, bro. Yeah, take it easy. Appreciate it. Hamas thanks you. I thank you. Thank you. Peace and love. Pe- you believe peace yeah. is important, right? Of course. Of course. Yeah. But we got to get peace, you first got to destroy some stuff, you know? Yeah. See you, man. Hamas thanks you. I thank you. Ami Horowitz says. Oh, man. I'll, I'll give the same donation I gave to Bernie Sanders, one of them says. Now, a lot of this I know is ignorance, and that's a part of it, too. And people just, I get it. But some of these people have obviously heard things about Hamas, that it's a resistance group, that it's equaling things out with Israel. 
Ami, more great work for my friend Ami Horowitz. Do you want privacy and security when you're doing all the stuff you do online? If the answer is yes, then you need a virtual private network. Because big tech is constantly spying on you and selling your information to other people. Every website, everything you type, all the stuff you're doing online, big tech is spying on you. It's their business model. So why not create privacy for yourself, deny big tech the right to make money off of selling your every action online, and also add a layer of security for yourself with encryption of all your data? You need a VPN, and the best virtual private network, that's what a VPN is, is ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data like a lot of the other cheap competitors out there. ExpressVPN uses a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. And the speed is incredible. Whenever I use ExpressVPN, all of my connections are just as fast. Some of the other competitors out there slow you down a bit. And the last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from others is how easy it is to use. I know VPN, it sounds technical. All you have to do is fire up the app, click one button, and you're connected and you're good to go. It's so easy. Whatever generation you're in, I'm telling you, grandparents, you can use it. Millennials can use it. Gen Z can use it. ExpressVPN is what you've got to have. Protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use my link right now. Go to expressvpn.com slash buck and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. When you sign up for one year, you'll get three extra months free. Just go to this website. It's so easy and straightforward. ExpressVPN.com slash buck. That's ExpressVPN.com slash buck to learn more. So what I will say is that um, I'm not surprised, but I think his comments are really dangerous. I mean, we, we have data that about 40 percent of people who identify as Republican don't want to get vaccinated. He could be considered a trusted messenger and he's putting out inaccurate information. And what we do know is that uh, the natural the immunity that you get from natural inspection is not as strong or robust um, as the immunity that you receive from vaccines. Additionally, we also know that the immunity uh, induced by vaccines covers the variants, and that's also concerned. So people who have had previous COVID infection can potentially get reinfected uh, with variants. So it's incredibly dangerous that, especially as a physician, that he's giving out this information, and um, which, which is even you know pushes us more to want to get out accurate, responsible messaging about the vaccine. People need to understand that um, natural immunity is not sufficient uh, to prevent reinfection. Natural immunity is not sufficient to prevent reinfection. This MSNBC guest says, Do- a doctor on MSNBC, taking issue with what Dr. Rand Paul said recently about his natural immunity status. There's a lot of things she says here that I want to pay attention to for a moment. Uh, Natural immunity is not sufficient to prevent reinfection. We know that there are breakthrough infections because they reported on them to terrify everybody a few weeks ago for even the vaccinated. So the statement she made about natural immunity can, as a matter of fact, be made about vaccinated immunity as well. So that's not really an important uh, data point. That doesn't really tell you anything, does it? Natural immunity is not perfect uh, or acquired immunity, right, from having the virus. Vaccinated immunity is not perfect. Two factual statements. Now, okay, if she's going to say that vaccine immunity is better than naturally derived acquired immunity, is she talking about for COVID 
or in general, because across the board, that's not always true. So is it true specifically for COVID? I believe she would say yes, right? But I'm just saying, you know, we have to be very clear about what is being claimed here. No more can we hear these people and say, they're experts. I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen to the experts because the experts know you got a triple mask and you got to put on goggles or else you're going to get the Rona. And, you know, that's what I saw on CNN. And, you know, no, no, that's not the way to go about this. As we all know. So you have to look at the specific facts and ask for the data, ask for the proof. How can they even know at this point whether natural immunity or vaccinated immunity is longer lasting? We've only had people getting vaccinated for a few months. We know that natural immunity has their antibodies. We don't even really we're not even really able to know how much T cell immunity there is, white blood cell immunity that your system maintains after an infection. But for at least 90, probably 180 days, they expect you to have antibodies in your system, not always, but generally from a natural infection. I was I was infected. So I, I based on science, have antibodies in my blood to covid right now. That's that's the belief. I should have them. So how long and this is the this is I'm asking these questions for a reason. How long does vaccinated immunity last? Ask that question and you will get shut up and get vaccinated. Okay, well, hold on a second. How long does vaccinated immunity last? In fact, if I right now type in um, to Google, how long does vaccinated immunity last for COVID? Um, The good news is that this is the first thing that comes up on Google. The good news is that there is reason, I'm reading the quote here, there is reason to believe that immunity from COVID-19 vaccines will last at least longer than six months. Natural immunity can last up to eight months, according to research published in Science. Uh, Okay, well... Eight months is longer than six months, and this is the first thing that pops up on uh, on my uh, on Google, and it's from the Global Alliance for what is this called? G A V I, the Vaccine Alliance. Okay, and it's all this different stuff. I'm just telling. This is just so. Here I am. I'm trying to get informed, right? I'm trying to learn stuff because I just saw this woman on MSNBC, the doctor, saying this. And yet the first answer that I get, the featured snippet that comes up on Google of 510 million results, the number one result on Google tells me that, in fact, natural immunity lasts up to eight months and vaccinated immunity is believed to be longer than six months. Well, which one of those sounds better? I'm just telling you exactly what I see here. Okay, I go to Healthline.com, the next one that pops up. 
New research finds that mRNA vaccines uh, for COVID-19 provide immunity for at least six months. But since COVID-19 is so new, experts aren't sure if immunity will wane after that. Experts say more research will have to be done to understand if people will need regular booster shots for COVID-19. They don't know the answers to these questions that I am posing now on air. They do not know. And if they say they know, they are lying to you. Now, I think that's important. I think that's relevant information right now because they are are promoting this stuff as if it's settled, which they do over and over again. They are running fast and loose with the facts. So if I'm thinking about this and I'm looking at this, they say that vaccinated immunity is better than natural immunity. That is at best an analysis and extrapolation from data. It is not proven. It is not clear. And it may not even be true. But MSNBC puts a person on there to say Rand Paul is doing Rand Paul is saying dangerous things. You know, Rand Paul just got like white powder sent to him or something because some moron in the in the uh, entertainment industry. I don't even know what the guy does said that he loves the neighbor, that he would hug the neighbor that attacked Rand Paul. They hate Rand Paul because he's smart and he's principled and he's not an authoritarian busybody. And he knows what they, the authoritarian left, are really all about. Um, But as you know, I I don't always agree with Rand Paul, although I do a lot, but I've got a lot of respect for the guy. And what he's been put through, almost beaten to death by a leftist, after almost being shot to death by a Bernie Sanders leftist, okay? That's Senator Rand Paul. Oh, but all the political violence comes on the right. Oh, yeah, sure. Nonsense. But back to the vaccination discussion here. They want someone like me, for example, to get vaccinated, even though I have a confirmed COVID diagnosis and recovery, because they tell you it's not enough. You need vaccination, too. They have no proof of that. Does not exist. They are thinking, they are surmising, they cannot prove that. And in fact, as I just told you, the first things you see when you do a Google search on them, now you can say, oh, Buck, that's Google. Okay, but this is how people get their information now. The first hit I get on how long does uh, does immunity from COVID vaccination last? The first hit I get tells me that natural immunity may well be better than longer lasting than vaccinated immunity. But natural immunity is not something anyone obviously makes any money off of. And then it also complicates the narrative of, well, then does everyone really have to get the shot? Does everyone? Rand Paul's at MD says he's not getting it. Does everyone have to get it? They, they simply don't. They simply don't know here how long this will last. And then there's that other part of it. They've, they're setting this up for you right now. And I hate to be the one to, to bring this up because I know it's a, it's a bummer for all of us. They're setting this thing up. The whole narrative, and this comes at a time when we know that the origins of COVID, all of a sudden the narrative around that is changing. But their whole narrative is that you get the shot right, right now. It's get the shot and you're pretty much done. Yeah, you still have to wear a mask for no good reason on an airplane or whatever, but get the shot and you're pretty much good to go. How can they tell us that? 
if they don't know whether we're going to need booster shots for this. And if we're going to need booster shots for this, do you now have a situation where there will be a requirement for annual COVID-19 shots for you to be considered, you know, one of the safe, one of the good ones who gets the shot? I think the answer to that is clearly yes, you're going to have to get booster shots. And you can see that's why for a lot of people uh, holding the line against vaccine passports and these government mandates is so important right now. And that's why you have states that are taking very different approaches to this. Some states are saying you can't have vaccine passports. Others are saying, yeah, you know, absolutely. We want we want there to be restrictions in place based on vaccination status. Private sector can do it. Go for it. So I'm I'm seeing here there are unanswered questions. They don't know when they're pretending they do. And that's all you have to all you have to know to understand that something is up here. There's a problem. The answer to the question, how long does vaccinated immunity last for COVID-19 is they don't know. They think six months. That's the real answer. The answer for how long does naturally acquired immunity last is they don't know, but they think up to eight months, probably six, but they don't know. The answer to how many times are you going to have to get a COVID vaccine if you think that vaccination should be effectively mandatory for all people is they don't know. They will let you know in time when they decide. Someone please explain to me, please write and tell me how I'm not seeing this right. Tell me what I'm missing here. But notice the certainty. They go on TV and they have Fauci and the other little little health policy fascists running around acting like they've got all the answers when really they're making value judgments and they're using analysis and pretending it's fact. So I'll just say this, you know, I um, I put out a statement. I wrote that statement. It is, you know, it was an, an honest mistake, and I I have apologized for it. Um, I think that we have specifically not gone forward and penalized businesses that are trying to do the right thing. It's those that have flouted and put people's safety at risk that um, you know are the most concerning, but. I don't know that there's a, a lot more for me to add at this point in time other than those uh, former Spartans, or I guess you're a Spartan for life, who know the establishment should be aware that it's now a restaurant, and they have pretty good pizza. Oh, yeah, you know, you got good pizza, and, uh, you know, I just we made a little mistake there, and, oh, you know, I'm the governor, and, you know, I'm a human, and I like good pizza, and I'm just like you, and you have been Whitmer of Michigan, the governor, the biggest of lockdown tyrants. I mean, at the top five, certainly in the country, probably top three. And it turns out that you break your own rule. And it's a stupid rule to begin with. It shouldn't even be there. But it never forces her to think, well, maybe I shouldn't be enforcing stupid rules. No, it's better to apologize for violating your own stupid rule than saying it was dumb in the first place. That is the approach of the Democrats here. That is their decision with all of this all across the board when it comes to COVID. When it, I mean, obviously, this is what Whitmer is saying, um, but we still have a long way to go here, friends. I went I went flying. Uh, I was on a plane, not like I went flying on my own. I was on a commercial jet over the weekend. 
I'm going to be uh, in Miami this coming weekend. On a, I love Miami. What can I tell you? I'll be on a, on a plane. I'm going to have to wear a mask. We have all these stupid rules still. And this is not just going to go away. And if we allow it to linger, as it is just like a virus, if you allow some viral particles, if your system doesn't clear it all, it may come back. Uh, you need to actually clear the virus. You need to have a, it expelled from your system. And lockdownerism and mask worship, these are like viri of the brain. And I, I think we have to continue to engage on these issues, what I'm saying. I, I, we're not done yet because there's still stupid rules. That's why Governor Whitmer violated one of her own stupid rules. Oh, one more thing on, on vaccination. Stephen A. Smith is a, is a sports commentator. And he is upset with I've seen him before on TV. I'm not really familiar with his work. As you all know, I don't care about professional sports commentary at all. I mean, I care about professional sports commentary the way, you know, most people would care about, uh, you know, professional poker commentary, let's say, who never gamble. Like, I I just it doesn't appeal to me at all. But I, I know who Stephen A. Smith is. He's upset with LeBron James because of not saying more about vaccination, play 12. He hasn't spoken about this, Numer- despite numerous opportunities that he's had to do so. Obviously, that'll raise an antenna and make you wonder why he insists on not speaking on such a thing at all, particularly when he recognizes how it's ravaged our nation, how it's ravaged the world globally, and what kind of profound impact it has had on our communities. That's why I said what I said, because optics matter, particularly when it comes to LeBron James. You put yourself in this position, you know it's going to conjure up questions and to give those weak answers that he gave the other day when asked about it before a playoff game against the Phoenix Suns, I just thought was beneath what we've come to know, appreciate, and fully expect from LeBron James. And in that particular instance, he was a flagrant disappointment. I think LeBron James is a flagrant disappointment for anything that does not involve putting a basketball into a cylinder. I, I don't understand. I don't think LeBron James is impressive in any capacity beyond his ability to play a, a sport. And and I, but I also understand he's got a lot of influence, which is troubling, especially for what he says about law enforcement, police and and race relations in America. I think that's very troubling. Uh, but I, I've got a better idea. Instead of expecting athletes to weigh in on complicated topics like vaccination, because that's uh, so, someone that we should all look to, I would much prefer if we would understand that athletes, actors, most politicians aren't very smart, don't know what the heck they're talking about, and not obviously all athletes or, or actors, but you know, most of the individuals who speak out on these issues don't know what the heck is going on. Let's not look to people just because they're famous for advice on complicated medical or policy issues. We like to talk solutions and action here on the show whenever possible. As you know, school boards are dominated in many places across the country by leftists, and they're trying to indoctrinate children. This results in further indoctrination down the line, politicized people on the left all across the country, And we've got to put a stop to it. But what can we do? How do you get rid of critical race theory and other left wing dogma being uh, brainwashed into children? Well, my next uh, 
guest here has an idea and he's doing something about it. Ryan Gerdusky is with us now. He's the author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created a National Populist Revolution. He's a political consultant and he's got a new project to tell you all about. Ryan, great to have you. Thank you for having me, Buck. I really appreciate it. So what's going on here? You have started a pack that's going to do yes. some very interesting stuff. Tell everybody. So it's the first pack in America. It's called the 1776 Project Pack. It can be found at 1776projectpack.com. And it's the first pack that's going to focus on school board elections on a national level. It's a national super pack. Um, and I'm going to create 50 state packs. So you'll donate to the national super pack or get involved in the national super pack. And it will filter to every state pack and, and, and campaigns across every state. And we are going to challenge school board members who are promoting critical race theory in the 1619 project throughout the entire country. And why I think that the school board elections are unique than other elections is that 89% of school board elections across the country are nonpartisan. Very few actually have an R or a D to their name. So it's very possible to compete in leaning blue or left-wing areas that Republican politicians unfortunately don't find themselves succeeding in because they have an R attached to their name. So that's an advantage. They're also uh, much, much cheaper to run than congressional campaigns or Senate campaigns or governorships. These are elections that are done you know, through mostly mailers and, and mail campaigns and, 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 web, and web ads. Um, it can be done on a much, much, much cheaper level. So your dollar will actually go much further to support as many candidates that we possibly can afford for this next upcoming election cycle to uh, to win over school board elections. And I'm hoping that this will be the start of a much bigger thing. I got a, I got a couple of questions, Ryan. Um, I, I don't have kids, so I haven't really dealt with the school board. Neither thing. do I. So, right. Yeah. No, but uh, but I mean, obviously, you're, you're working on this. So I just want to know. Well, first off, actually, even taking a step further back. What does a pack really do forever? We hear this. People read about it. We talk about it. What does a pack do? So a super pack or a pack, uh, a pack and a super pack are a little different. But a super pack, which is what I started, is a political action committee that can campaign on behalf of candidates running for office. So you're not allowed to, to campaign with the candidate, but you can campaign on their behalf, sending out mail, making commercials, doing digital advertising, even having your own door knockers and phone bankers campaign on behalf of a candidate as long as you don't coordinate with the campaign um so let's say you were running for office and i ran a pack for you i though i couldn't tell you uh, talk to you about what your strategy is or what you're doing i could raise independent funds and make mailers or commercials supporting you and or or attacking your opponent and so what is the advantage here what, what are we hoping to accomplish with this super pack at school boards if you're successful it will mean what so the, the reason the pack is interesting is they'll be able to support one. You can have an unlimited amount of dollars. So you can give a dollar, you can give a million dollars. You can give anything in between, you can give an unlimited a number of, of money if you wanted to. It also is advantageous by the fact that I don't have to declare a single solitary candidate. It can be an issue oriented pack, which is what this is. So I can support school board members in Pittsburgh and then school board members over near Charlotte, North Carolina, and, you know, in California and in upstate New York or wherever I want to. Um, I don't need to be concentrated as, as opposed to just donating to a candidate to a single person uh, or, or place. I could do, you know, as many or as few as, as I possibly can afford. Speaking to Ryan Gerdusky, he's the author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites have created a national populist revolution, and he's telling us about his new pack 
Uh, Ryan, tell everyone the name of the pack again. The 1776 Project Pack. Uh, 1776projectpack.com. Um, once again, the first national school board pack in, in America. And, you know, this is what the left has done very, very well. As you saw back in 2018, George Soros put millions of dollars into district attorney's races. District attorney's races are local elections. Um, that's something that most national people don't think about. And But he was very successful in putting people in place in Los Angeles and in in, in, um, in Philadelphia and Chicago. And what that resulted in was this huge spike of a spike in crime as, as district attorneys allowed prisoners to run free um, and, and caused massive chaos uh, across the entire country. And that's why we've seen a spike in crime. I'm trying to get the head start. I don't want to be reactionary to what left left wingers are doing. I'm doing it ahead of time. I'm trying to invest money at the school board level to try to win over people to to oppose critical race theory in the 1619 project. And I also want to go one step further. For 40 or 50 years, conservatives have sat there and said we have a problem with what they're teaching at schools. Um, and then they push the critical race theory, and now we want to go back to what we just what we've hated for 40 or 50 years, and not actually fundamentally alter it. I'm going to focus on even in places that have um, banned critical race theory, which is now four states, Texas, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and Idaho. I want to focus on trying to move the conversation forward and create a conservative um, curriculum with history. There are simple things and little things that kids are being taught um, that are not critical race theory necessarily, but they're historically a little bit inaccurate or they portray America in a negative light. I would like to sit there and stop it and portray America in a positive light. These are national schools. They should promote a national um, uh, community, a national, uh, you know, uh, state of pride for your nation. We shouldn't be – our government should not be working against our, ourselves. So, we're, so we're talk, what we're talking about here, Ryan, would basically be instead of the, the 1619 Project, which is a New York Times – narrative of our history that has some major false, fact, narrative. false narrative that has some major factual inaccuracies um, right. that you instead of just saying we because I think this is this goes to some uh, a fundamental issue of conservatism today, which is in a lot of cases, the the reaction from the right is, well, let's just create a neutral space. And and this this notion of a vacuum when it comes to curriculum is is absurd. I mean, that's that's not going to work. Just saying, well, right. don't teach. There's the no such thing as a neutral standpoint of history. History is a lot of times written in the eyes of the winners or in the people who have a critical view of it. You know, uh, kids are taught nowadays things like uh, slavery is the original sin of the United States. Well, slavery was an ugly point of our history. There's no contention about that. However, we didn't invent <clears throat> invent uh, slavery. Slavery is not an American idea. It's not solely, you know, just within this one country. We should children should not be taught that America must bear this entire burden for something that happens on a global scale among all races, among all people, among all continents. Um, it is a it is a fault of human nature, not a fault of just being American. But the, the, this over, you know, intensified look at how we are at fault for anything that is you know, innately human um, gives children a very negative glance and a negative view of history. They're taught to villainize people like George Washington and Christopher Columbus and and celebrate people who don't have, um, you know, very good intentions when it comes to the American state and the American nation. Um, 
that has to be reversed. It just has to. You should be, if you go to a state school, you should be taught why the American nation, the nation you will live in, you're probably born in, you grow up in, is inherently the greatest place on earth, a very good nation that has done probably, I would argue, a majority of the great things over the last 200 years that all of human life has experienced. Um, and, you know, kids are not taught that. And that is very, very, you know, upsetting. And I think that coming coming at it from trying to get a neutral standpoint of history is not accurate because there is no neutral standpoint. I mean, you, I think that that's ridiculous. Kids aren't don't sit there and learn data all day long. They learn stories. And I think we should tell stories in a positive light of the American nation, of American history. Um and, and that's especially while they're growing up in, in their most formative years when they're young. We're speaking to Ryan Gerdusky, and he is the founder of 1776projectpack.com. That's where the uh, that's the website you can go to learn about the super PAC to teach the American founding in schools as something to be celebrated and, so, and, and American history to be right. celebrated. And I want and I want to I just want to emphasize one important thing. The 1619 Project, which is pushed by um, the New York Times and created by that, emphasizes falsehoods of American history. The 1619 uh, Project sits there and says the American Revolution was fought over slavery, not the Civil War. The American Revolution because the British wanted out out slavery, oust it, and the colon uh, and the coloners uh, didn't uh, colon, the colonies didn't, which is in, completely false. Never happened. But that is taught in thirty five hundred classrooms in this country. This is not a blue state issue. This is not a just a uh, you know a blue city issue. This is in red cities, in red counties, you know, in Republican strongholds. This is being propagated for children. And I understand that the Republican narrative, and the conservative narrative for decades has been get your kids out of public school. I completely understand that. I agree with that. However, a majority of children will always go to public school in this country. There's I mean, that is the, that is the case we're in. So unless we fight over curriculum and what is actually being taught, we are we are conceding the entire next generation to these immense falsehoods and these characterizations that their country is a horrible places and horrible things and that is no redeeming qualities. Ryan, is is there a a committee of advisors for what the 1776 uh, curriculum that your your super PAC would want instituted in schools? I mean, can people see what the curriculum is or are they get? So some- there's a couple of, pl- I, 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 we're not at that level yet. We just, I mean, we just launched yesterday. So it's now we're in the middle of fundraising and trying to find candidates who would even do it. And then uh, there's a couple places. Hillsdale college has a great education plan when it comes to history. Claremont university is trying to create their own curriculum. So I, I'm going to look at what's available publicly. I'm not writing the curriculum. I don't have the credentials to do that. But there are conservative thinkers who do have who have been writing that curriculum who will uh, that I will stem from and that hopefully as I find candidates across the country, I will provide them with that literature and say, look, this is what we want once you're elected. Ryan Gerdusky, everybody, founder of the 1776 Project pack it's a super pack looking to do uh things on education here do, do you think ryan we, as we look at this issue do you think that the um the the pushback on critical race theory is is gaining steam because more and more people have been exposed to what it is is like because they've been at home with zoom learning and you know the parents are actually seeing it because yeah, it feels like there's a real there's a real wave going on now 
that I mean that's how I became interested in my godson who's uh, 10 years old he he was taught in his in his zoom classroom that police cars only go after black cars not after white cars and it was this t- incredibly racist story about how policing is is an inherently racist thing and he's 10 years old this is not a high school class this is not a college class this is where they're they're pushing this and most Americans reject this narrative. Most Americans of every race reject this narrative. Uh, because you are born white does not mean you are inherently born privileged or racist. It doesn't mean you have a systemic racism flowing through your blood. Because you're born non-white does not mean you're a victim or you have a crutch that you can't overcome anything. I mean, this is a ridiculous narrative that hurts children of any race that there is. Um and yeah, I think there is a tremendous pushback. Over a, a recent poll I read said over seventy-five percent of Americans oppose this teaching in schools. Most in, incredibly oppose it, um, and it's just a matter of trying to win this from the activists who are who have ingratiated themselves in our public education discourse now. Seventeen seventy-six projectpack.com, founded by Ryan Gerdusky. Ryan, good luck with this. Come back and tell us how it's going. Thank you. We'll do. The Fast and the Furious movies are uh, absurd. And I think just I don't understand why anyone likes them. I really I mean, maybe the first or the second or the third or maybe the fourth, maybe the fifth, the sixth. I mean, they're they're now at Fast and Furious nine. They made nine of these movies, which are basically just about people going vroom, 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 vroom in cars and like driving around and doing crazy things that no one can actually do in cars. Uh, but I look to each his own. If you enjoy that, fine. I don't, I don't care. That doesn't really matter. I'm not a film critic, although I do play one on radio sometimes. Um, but this is this is important because of what it shows you about the power and reach of uh, China in American society, and and when it comes to American public figures, actors, politicians, John Cena. Um, is it Cena or Cena? Cena. John Cena. Whatever. I don't even know this guy really. He's an actor. Act. He's a, he's a wrestler, actor. He is in Fast and Furious 9. He was doing press, uh, you know, press pieces, um, promotion for Fast and Furious 9. But in an interview, uh, he said, while he was doing press for Fast and Furious 9, the, he called Taiwan a country. Now... Taiwan is, in fact, a country. But China is very, very sensitive about this. The Chinese Communist Party is just rabid about issues relating to Taiwan. And so John Cena had to go on Sina uh, Weibo, and which is a website in China, a social media platform in China, and say... Uh, say in Chinese. This is, I just want to hear this. This is John Cena speaking in Chinese with Chinese subtitles because uh, from what I understand, his accent is, his intonation is not very good, so it's hard for Chinese speakers to really understand him. But he goes in Chinese, this American actor, to apologize for calling Taiwan a country. Play eight. I mean, my gosh, this guy 
Talk about having to get up there and, and grovel. Okay, so he, he is a a pretty globally famous wrestler, actor. He's obviously a multi-multi-millionaire. And, you know, he he is apparently a big Make-A-Wish Foundation guy. I mean, so he's doing some... He's, look, I'm sure he's a good guy, but this is just embarrassing. But he's probably being told, well, if you don't do this, China may pull our film. And everybody worked on the film and everybody who's put all this time and money into it and everything else, you know, this could cost jobs. And so, you know, I get, I understand there's pressure. I'm not, you know, it's not as easy as, as it can sometimes seem to take a, take a stand here. I'm not bashing John Cena for this, although it, it, it is kind of the, it looks craven, right? But I'm not bashing John Cena so much as I'm trying to point out, this is how much power China has. They, the Chinese government, can make a globally famous American multimillionaire bend the knee and beg forgiveness for saying something that is true. That's what's all amazing. Saying something that is accurate. China, I mean, uh, Taiwan is a country. It is a nation state. It has its own government. It's recognized by the international community. And yet he has to say sorry. He has to say sorry. Absolutely absurd. But this is the situation. Uh, this is this is how powerful now China's sensitivities are. So just remember that as you're watching uh, movies this summer. Okay, before we get into roll call, because I was just talking about this, I I wanted to to uh, clarify a little bit. I I said that Taiwan is a country, and it is. But it is a little complicated. Uh, if you look at the, the status of of Taiwan, um, it's there's some weird stuff going on. OK, so, I mean, for example, the the current situation is 17 countries recognize Taiwan's democratic government, which is known as the Republic of China. Um, but. The United Na- the United Nations believes that the People's Republic of China in Beijing speaks for the island of Taiwan. So you have a situation where 20 plus million Taiwanese citizens can travel anywhere in the world on a Taiwanese passport, which says the Republic of China, which is Taiwan, um, but they can't actually enter a U.N. building with them. So... You know, there there are some now Taiwan is a country and I am very pro Taiwan for whatever that's worth. But I just wanted to know that there are some weird. There, there's a it's a weird situation with the way the world treats them. So there are a number of countries that that treat it as a full country, full diplomatic relations. Um, but the U.S. relationship even with uh, Taiwan is a little more complicated here. Here's how they wrote about it in the Atlantic. Now, this was in 2019. After nine years of construction, more than 400 American diplomats and staff have moved into new offices in Taipei, capital of Taiwan, a $250 million compound built into a lush hill with security provided by Marines. Employees will offer American citizens in Taiwan consular services and help Taiwanese obtain visas to visit the United States just as they would anywhere else in the world. Yet this is not an embassy or a consulate, at least officially. Instead, it is the American Institute in Taiwan, 
a name that suggests a research center rather than a diplomatic re- uh, mission, the result of a geopolitical compromise that, while far from the biggest of Taiwan's problems, illustrates the ludicrous situation uh, Taiwan finds itself in. It is not recognized as a country by its most important ally, the United States. Um, and so that anyway, end quote there. This is a piece by Chris Horton on uh, on Taiwan status. So, I mean, we treat it like a country. We give it the many of the rights of a country, a separate country. But then there are these ways in which we do this sort of, you know, bending the knee to the Chinese uh, instead of the Republic of China, the People's Republic of China in Beijing storyline that that Taiwan is a part of China, <laughs> even though if you know any history, you know about happened with the uh, Chiang Kai-shek um, and uh you know, what what happened with the Chinese effectively civil war with the communists. Anyway, you get, so I, I wanted to clarify all that because, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is right to say Taiwan is a country, but there are some weird, uh, some weird situations around. Okay. With that, we, we, we have our before, or no, let's, let's get to roll call. Hit it. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for roll call. Producer Mark, what is going on with you, man? We wanted to check in, see how our buddy is doing. What's the latest and greatest in your world? Well, I'm just hoping to not get hurt because apparently anyone affiliated with the New York Mets uh, is injured right now. Uh Uh-oh, what's going on, buddy? uh, 18 players on the injured list. 18? 18. An active roster has 26 on it. How does that happen? The backups to the backups or the, or the are getting injured now. Yeah. So if there was ever a time where producer Mark might have to suit up for his favorite team yeah. in the whole wide world, this is probably the closest. Yeah, there's a possibility I'm at first base later tonight. So that's so. that's wild. What's going on with all these guys? It, it's just freak injuries. Some guys have crashed into walls. One guy got hit in the face with a baseball. I don't know. I don't know if you saw that last week, but. A guy named Kevin Pilar on the Mets got hit directly in the face with a 99-mile-per-hour fastball, and he looks like it. But he's completely okay. He just needs to—he broke his nose. He had surgery, but, you know, other than that, he's fine. Wow. Crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, um— Crazy stuff going on, producer Mark. I'm glad. So look, if you have to suit up, though, at least all of Team Buck will be rooting for you all across the country. Absolutely. I'll make sure uh, to send out the highlights uh, to the Buck Sexton Twitter account if that happens. There we go. Gina, first up in Roll Call. Remember, if you want to be a part of Roll Call, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. Um, let's let's get to it. She writes, uh, what is going on with the Durham report? And that is a great question <laughs> because, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I hate to be the guy that's always like, I told you so, but I've been saying all along here, don't get your hopes up for there to be some big moment of of justice and recognition of the uh, deep state coup against Trump and all that. Nope. Um, they're they're going to bear th- this Democrat administration. If there is anything that comes out of the Durham report, they will bury it. They will bury it. Um, it's not going to mean very much. Uh, they, they'll be something released and they'll just say, we've seen the, you know, Merrick Garland who's showing what a little partisan hacky is. He's saying the January 6th 
insurrection was, you know, like 9-11. I mean, Merrick Garland's a joke. Uh, that guy was going to be in the Supreme Court, everybody. Little hack, Merrick Garland. Oh, but he's so moderate and reasonable. They all said, yeah, please. Bunch of liars. We all knew that. Um, but yeah, is the Durham report ever coming out? Gina, your guess is as good as mine. But if by coming out you mean do anything while Biden's in office, the answer is no, it will not. It will do nothing. It will do nothing. So people who are telling you, just wait, just wait. And, you know, day after day, updates, updates, updates on uh, on all the information coming out about, you know, the deep state's going to get its comeuppance. Nope, that did not happen. The deep state did not get its comeuppance at all. I mean, you know, you could point to a couple of people that suffered minor, minor consequences for their attempted use of the federal government to essentially undo the 2016 presidential election. So there you have it. All right. Here we go. Deborah. Uh, uh oh, another satisfied customer. My husband has the radio on all day long in the car. And as I sat and listened to you, I became extremely agitated about your take on remote teachers being lazy. I do think you need to hear what it is like being a remote Department of Education teacher. You have no idea what it is like to keep 10 year olds engaged for five hours a day. You are dealing with their emotion, academic and social needs while dealing with some parents that could care less about their achievements, while the large majority want the best for their kids and worry about their health. I work 14 hours a day teaching, designing curriculum to enhance the horrendous curriculum for 30 regular education and special education students, marking their work as well as contacting parents. Please don't lump the teachers that do their job with a few bad apples. Many of us care about the kids. Every Friday, I stream movies or have a game night so the kids can socialize. I've gotten donations from Home Depot, kids building kits, and driven to each child's house three times so far. I made sure they had Halloween, Christmas, and spring packages. I know I'm not the only Department of Education teacher that goes above and beyond. We love our kids and want them to succeed. All right, Deborah. first of all, thank you for the work you're doing and for making a difference for all those kids. This is one of the one of the challenges of doing commentary about things like the teachers unions and the situation of public schools across the country is I am effectively describing what is a widespread problem, but not a on every case problem uh, involving hundreds of thousands of employees of the Department of Education across the country. So, yes, I think I always try to say, and I think I have said, of course, there are great teachers out there, and it sounds like you are one of them. And so at some level, I think you should know, of course, I'm not talking to you, Deborah. I'm not telling you that you're not doing a good job or you're being lazy. I know from many parents, uh, friends of mine who are parents, uh, that the Zoom teaching that their children are subjected to is like the equivalent of a DJ who presses play on the playlist and then goes and has a sandwich and just sort of lets it all just go. That there's very little uh, effort to do the kind of things you're talking about. And the reason the teachers unions are fighting so hard for this is that for a lot of teachers, staying home and doing Zoom is easier and less work. And I also know that from people who work for the Department of Education so while I th while your your um, note is well taken and I appreciate it and it adds necessary perspective, I would also still point out that not having to commute and show up in person 
is easier um, uh, is easier than having to do so. So Zoom is going to be preferable for people who want to do less work and have an easier job. Do some teachers who Zoom teach go above and beyond? Sure, of course. But kids, I mean, I would ask you, Deborah, and you can write in and let us know. Do you think that you'd be better able to do your job in person? I'm sure you would say yes, but I would want to hear it from you. I would guess the answer is yes. Uh, so my my point then still stands. It should all be in person. The people who are fighting to continue Zoom teaching are people that want to be able to do their jobs with less work and less difficulty. You are being forced to do your job via Zoom and are going above and beyond so I'm clearly not actually referring to you when I'm criticizing those who seek to stay at home and do Zoom forever. Or am I mean, am, am I missing something? But hey, I appreciate it. Appreciate your husband listens to the show. You're teaching. I'm not. Your perspective is valued. And I thank you for writing in. Cody. Hello, Buck and producer Mark. Big fan of the show. I listen to the podcast every day. I enjoy all of it from the history lessons to hammering Fauci and calling him from the beginning on what he is a tyrant. I work on a mine in Nevada, and it's upsetting to hear that because they shut down Vegas and lose that income. Now they're coming after the mines to make up the revenue. I hope the mines can withstand this and survive because they provide great paying jobs for a lot of people. My wife is a dog breeder and has doodles and cavapoos. They're a hardy, non-shedding dog that will be the size of Tallulah. I heard you expressing interest in a dog, and if these interest you, let me know. We can get a Freedom Hut deal worked out. Thanks so much for the entertainment you provide me on a daily basis. Keep up the great work. Shields high. Well, Cody, thank you so much. And thank you for the kind offer of a doodle or a cavapoo. Um, I'm sure they are great. My brother has a cavapoo, so he loves it. I mean, he's, his cavapoo is adorable. Um, and as for uh, what else did we get into here? Entertaining you, man, the Cody, it is my honor and privilege. And for everyone who joins every day, whether on radio or listening on a podcast, uh, Thank you for giving us your time and for keeping producer Mark and me employed. All right. Coming back here with uh, with some more roll call. We have Andy running. Uh, hey, Buck and uh, master producer Mark listening to your Friday podcast about the 9-11 style investigation. I would be 100 percent fine with it if they included the summer 2020 BLM riots and who was responsible for starting that. A summer of burning down buildings, having military-style weapons, and causing the death or injury of dozens requires an investigation. More than 100 idiots rushing the Capitol does. Uh, Andy, I can tell you this for sure. They absolutely will not and have no interest in including any of the BLM riots, any of the political violence of the left in a January 6th commission. That's why they're calling it the January 6th commission they want to make sure it focuses only on that day and no other days no other events about political violence in america because that would not go to the narrative and the republicans that want to play along with this i i really don't think it's because they can't they can't understand what would happen here i don't believe it's because they're so stupid that they don't see what this would really mean I think it's because they're so in love with their own virtue and with the pat on the head they get from the elite media, from from the Democrats. There are some Republicans who, it seems, really do just exist to get 
crumbs thrown to them from Democrats. There are some Republicans for whom whatever little sliver of approval they can get from their political opponents, that seems to be their their primary motivator on on any given day. The thing that gets them the most excited is how can I get a pat on the head from the libs? And it's it's a sad circumstance, but it's a very real one. And um, we have to be aware of who those people are and the kind of things that they say and do. Um, you know, Mitt Romney has said, for example, Mitt Romney has come out and said uh, that he would vote for a commission. Yeah, of course he would. Of course he would vote for a commission on January 6th because Mitt Romney's... Uh, favorite thing to do uh, is to to stick his thumb in the in the eye of his own side. That's something that gets Mitt Romney excited. Uh, he loves to be the one that shows Republicans how they are uh, learning from his example, from Mitt Romney's example, and that that's just a troubling circumstance. Just want to make sure everyone also is going to. BuckSexton.com and uh, checking in there. We've got stories getting posted. We've got um, the ability to listen to the podcast there. And please do. Oh, guys, I've got a couple of uh, a, a couple of things here that I meant to get to that I did not. Um, Texas does uh, does constitutional carry, so you don't need uh, any kind of a permit for a concealed weapon or training because you've got the second strongest or rather the strongest second amendment bill in history there. That's I meant to get that. And then Elizabeth Warren wants to triple the size of the IRS. I mentioned that at the very, very top of the show. Uh, We will have to get to this, both of those stories tomorrow. Um, Look, the, the notion of tripling the size of the IRS just in general should terrify any person with good sense who understands what the state, the big S state, wants to do um but these are those are i knew there were a couple of stories that i did not get to today and that i wanted to get to today so we'll revisit some of those tomorrow those are uh we'll take mulligans like on the golf course we'll hit those two stories tomorrow in the meantime please do pass the buck and send us some roll call but tell people about this show and send in your thoughts facebook.com slash buck sexton we will be back tomorrow same time same place shields high